It's been a great joy already being here uh, at McLean Presbyterian Church uh, over the last year or so. It's really been um, one of the great sort of treats and surprises uh, for me to get to know David and James and Nathan. Uh, it's been a highlight of my year. And like David said, it's, um, we haven't known each other long, but there's been a, a fast friendship and, and actually a bit of, of a surprising one. Um, when James came to speak at Covenant, uh, I'd heard of him, but I didn't know him. So I had no idea what to, no one had told me what James Forsyth looked like. So I was sort of expecting, um, for no particular reason really, but I just expected sort of a, a, a tall um, 65-year-old man <laughs> with sort of a proclivity to wear navy blue suits and black loafers, um, glasses, and this is true and I don't know why, I kind of expected him to have a comb over. So. <laughs> When, when James sort of strolls in and uh, he comes up and first thing, he gives me a hug and he's just a, a meat of muscle there and then he, he opens his mouth and this, this sweet Scottish brogue drops out and I, my, I swoon, of course. And, um, we were on our way to becoming fast friends. Um, so when, when James issued, he, he uh, texted me actually and invited me to come and speak. And he asked if I would be able to, to come um, this date. And in his text message, uh, he said, you know, I'll be going out of town. I was wondering if you could come fill the pulpit uh, uh, Sunday, August 16. Um, sermon title, colon, Science Has Disproved Christianity. <laughs> really, James? <laughs> like, are you sure you want me to preach on that? Um, so I, I, thought he was, I thought he was joking. I thought he was just, just being um, playful. So I responded in kind. And I said, James, I'd, I'd love to come. Thank you for the invitation. But I'm thinking something more along the lines with, and, and I'm trying to think of something as outlandish as possible. So I said, I think I'd rather speak on something like biblical romance, Jesus as savior and divine boyfriend. And James replied, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, it wasn't until I saw uh, James and David at GA that I realized the actual sermon title was real. And then I was terribly afraid that he thought my sermon title was real um, and that any invitation I had received was going to be rescinded with haste. Uh, but James assured me he knew I was joking as well. And that is when um, the invitation really went from uh, humor to irony. Um, because science and Christianity for an English major um, is a bit of an odd, an odd world to walk into. Uh, the last science class that I took in college at the University of Kansas was entitled Physics for Poets. <laughs> yeah, it, it's real. Um, wherein instead of studying laws of physics, theories and properties of physics, we read biographies of great physicists. <laughs> so uh, now that I've instilled great confidence in my ability to deftly handle this subject, um, let's, let's jump in. Is Christianity intellectually naive? Uh, or perhaps better put, is it intellectually naive to believe in Christianity? And in order to answer that, we need to unpack the question a little bit. The idea that Christians are naive suggests that Christians' intellect, the faculty of mind by which they think, know, and understand, is naive 
woefully unsophisticated, and ultimately quite sad. Instead of basing their belief on reason, fact, and intellect, it's charged that we are guided by emotion, feeling, and blind hope. Um, Anecdotally, it kind of boils down pretty simply to this. It suggests that people who believe in Christianity are really just not too bright and are most likely a little bit deluded. So the charge is laid that Christians willfully and culpably look away from obvious truth and overwhelming evidence so that we can cling to a belief system that gives us meaning and hope. But it's very interesting. If you go online, if you, if you Google it, if you read books, if you listen to these charges of naivety, they really fall into a few particular categories. There are simplistic accusations that oftentimes reveal uh, a lack of understanding of the Bible. Um, It's not uncommon to hear charges of um, Old Testament laws being thrown about from people who really don't understand Old Testament law at all, who have no understanding of the moral, civil, and ceremonial differences that are there. To hear things like, how could you believe in a God who cares if you boil your goat meat in its own milk? Or, you really believe in a God who says you can only eat insects that have jointed legs that are used for hopping? Um, misunderstanding and a poor understanding of scripture and its contexts. There are also the occasional challenges to archaeological dates and evidences. But the truth is, really, this wonderfully complex issue gets boiled down to one central issue and one central assertion. The issue is miracles. And the central assertion is this. Based on scientific evidence, miracles do not exist. And belief in miracles is irrational. Miracles do not exist, and to believe in miracles is irrational. And you can see how if that were true, it would would pose serious obstacles to Christianity, to belief in the risen Jesus. But it's really not terribly challenging to address. Tim Keller talks about it in his book, The Reason for God, how in order to claim that science disproves miracles, a huge leap of faith is required. He says it's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It's quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. And what he's talking about is the fact that scientific knowledge comes from observation and experimentation. And while observation and experimentation may yield evidence that miracles don't happen, it's incapable of proving that they cannot happen or that they have never happened. The bottom line really is this. Science can deem miracles improbable, but not impossible. Science can deem the belief in miracles irrational, but not never rational. And if you read scientists, many, if not most scientists, will actually agree to this. Um, Christians and non-Christians alike. 
Um, one article I read just recently, uh, Larry Shapiro is a professor of philosophy uh, at Wisconsin. And he was writing on just this exact thing, and he wrote a whole article about how belief in miracles is irrational. But he closes with the very last thing he says, uh, based on evidence, we can deduce that belief in miracles is not rational. However, my argument does not show that belief in miracles is never rational. Uh, Hans Halverson, who is a professor of philosophy at Princeton and a Covenant College graduate, I had to do that. Uh, he recently actually wrote an article um, entitled When Beliefs in Miracles is Rational. And he concludes with this, this thought. And it's really kind of a beautiful thing because it leads us to the heart of the issue. He says, more importantly, the reason it might be rational to believe biblical reports of miracles is because these reports play a crucial role in a larger narrative. And that larger narrative might itself be rationally acceptable. And whether it's rational to accept that larger narrative is one of the most difficult philosophical questions that humans have to face. And it brings us to the heart of the issue, and it's this. When we ask the question, are miracles possible, we are really asking, is there ever divine intervention in the world? Do miracles exist? Asks, is it possible that there is a God who is capable of intervening in the natural world. And this is where I would pose that scientists and English majors have a, a wonderful um, uh, thing in common. We both deal with story. We both deal with narratives. People take scientific facts, conclusions, and evidences, and from them create stories by which to understand the evidence and the facts. But what I would suggest is that stories that people create with scientific evidence oftentimes reveal more about their presuppositions than the stories do about ultimate reality. More about what they um, believe and how they view God and the world than what the science itself indicates may be possible. And that is very different than the scriptures. The scriptures are a whole different story. The word of God does something wholly different. The narrative contained in God's word, instead of revealing any authorial presuppositions, it unveils truth. We open God's word and we are exposed to the revelation of truth. Grand, cosmic, beautiful, painful, divine, practical, eternal, life-giving truth. And this is where the discussion really comes alive. Because no longer are we dealing with possibility and plausibility. When we open the Bible, we deal with revealed truth. We open the pages about which Augustine said, the surface meaning lies open before us and charms the beginners. Yet the depth, the depth is amazing. My God, the depth is amazing. Some people claim that Christians are comfortable not thinking, that we're happy to drink uncritically from the fountain of religious dogma. But it's simply not true. When we come to the scriptures, we come humble but alert, eyes open and minds ready, every faculty at our command alive and our hearts hungering to hear from the living God. And so we're going to look at a passage this morning that some deride as being absurd because of what God asks of a man. 
How could a loving God ask a man to sacrifice his son? But as we dig in, we will see truth revealed, and I think we'll see a depth of truth that maybe we don't even expect to see there. So before we jump into uh, chapter 22, just set a little bit of context for what's happening. Uh, When Abraham was 75, he was called by God to leave his home, to leave his land, and to go to the land of which God would show him. And God promises him descendants and land. He promises that he will make him into a great nation and that he will be a blessing. Well, God shows up again later, affirms those promises, and creates with Abraham, which is uh, one of the most beautiful covenant ratification ceremonies in the entire scriptures, by which God promises on himself that the promises that he has made to Abraham will come true. But the promises are, in fact, reliant upon children. So, 11 years after God calls Abraham initially, um, he and his wife are still barren. So at Sarah's suggestion, suggestion, Abraham goes in with his maidservant Hagar, and they have a son Ishmael. And you think initially that this is the boy through whom the promises are going to be made. But when he's 13 years old and Abraham is 99, God again appears to Abraham. He affirms the promises that he's made. He makes the covenant of circumcision with him. And he promises that he and Sarah will have a child together within a year. So at 100 years old, their miracle son, Isaac, the son of laughter, is born. The one in whom the promises of God rest and the joy of his faithful father. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Once again, God calls out to Abraham 35 years after the initial call to leave his land. The faithful Lord is calling Abraham again. And you have to wonder, is Abraham thinking that perhaps his life is coming to an end? Is God going to call him to be gathered to his fathers? He has his son. He knows that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. He's an old man. Is it his time? But we know that's not the case. In fact, something very different is going to happen. God is testing Abraham. He's not calling him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's instead calling him, and he's going to test him to reveal the very heart and the very nature of his character and his heart. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And the Hebrew is actually really beautiful here. The word please is there. He says, take please the living God To his servant, take please your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. The merciful word of the loving God to his servant. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This had to be the very last thing in the world that Abraham expected to hear. Sacrifice my son? the one upon whom all of your promises hinge, the one who you've promised to be the father of my descendants. Without him, Lord, your promises are broken, and you've promised on yourself to fulfill the promises. And there's no reason, no explanation, just the command of the living God. Offer your joy as a sacrifice. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. 
and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So they rise, they gather the goods, and they begin to go. And three days, three days they walk. Three days for Abraham to ponder God's call. Three days of walking with his son. Three days of camping and hearing him breathe as he sleeps. Three days of confusion and turmoil and wondering, Why, Lord? Why would you call me to do this? How does this make sense? Why would you want me to sacrifice the son that you have given me? And I think that in the course of those three days, at some point, the question shifted. It shifted from why to can I trust you? Can I really, truly trust you, Lord? Can I trust you with my son? Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you again. Plural. We will again come to you. He looks up and he sees the mountain from afar and he tells the servants, Isaac and I have to go alone from here, but we will come back to you. And we don't know for sure what's happening in Abraham's mind and heart, but Hebrews gives us a glimpse. Hebrews tells us, that Abraham had come to the realization and come to the conclusion that there is only one possible solution. If God had called him to sacrifice his son and he went through with it, there's only one thing that could happen. God would raise him from the dead. His faithful God, who had promised him that Isaac would be the bearer of his descendants, there was only one logical solution. God must be planning to raise him from the dead. Now, we don't know for sure if Abraham's there yet or if he's simply putting on his lips what he wants to be in his heart. But he says to the servants, the boy and I are going, but we will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took also in his hand the fire and the knife. So he places the wood on Isaac's back and he takes the fire pot and the knife in his own. And before we go on there, I want to pull back for just one second. Um, a few years ago, uh, I was at the Huntington uh, Museum in Pasadena, and it was the first time that I had gone. And it's a, it's a lovely, lovely museum, very beautiful, um, with some really amazing art. And I came around a corner at one point, and I turned, and there, right before me, uh, were two Van Goghs. And the one right in front of me was the mulberry tree. Um, and I don't know if you've known it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. And I stood, and I was kind of caught off guard. I, I didn't know that it was there. I didn't know there were Van Goghs. And I was probably 12, 12 to 15 feet away, and I just stood. And I couldn't help it. I was completely overcome. And I started to cry. And I stood there, sort of surprised at my reaction. But it was so powerful. And I, I got up, and I, and I got closer. If you've ever seen a Van Gogh, if you've ever seen a, a Van Gogh in a book or a poster, you know how, how beautiful they are. But seeing a Van Gogh in person is a whole different thing. Because it's not a flat canvas. When you get up close to a Van Gogh, you can see where he's taken his palette knife and where he's moved through the paint, and he's, he's brought it along. And, and the paint in some places stood out like a quarter to a half inch 
So you're not looking at a two-dimensional, you're looking at this, this amazing topography of, of beauty. And, I, and I'd like to suggest something similar is happening here in our passage. It's not just a story of Abraham and Isaac. There, there's a topography of depth that's happening. And as we begin to look, I'd like to ask you to, to see, begin to look for, for that palette knife that's pulling the paint out and see the depth there. And here is a place I'd like you to first see it. He took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. The son takes on his back the wood as he climbs the mountain on which he will be sacrificed. So they went, both of them, together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And here, when, when you have bookends like this, so they went both of them together, so they went both of them together, we want to pay special attention to what's happening in the middle. I think two things are happening. One, you have this beautiful, intimate picture of father and son. My father, here am I, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And we have to wonder, is it beginning to dawn on Isaac? Is he beginning to put the pieces together? His father gives him an answer. The Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. It's a bit cryptic. He has to be wondering, is he the lamb? But we hear that language. The Lord will provide the lamb for the offering. And remember our Dutch painter. Remember that palette knife. Remember the depth. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. They reached the place. He builds the altar, puts the wood in order, and how Abraham had to be wishing to hear God's voice again. To say, you're done. You don't have to go through with it. But that's not what he heard. And we can rightly assume that Isaac has now figured out that he is, in fact, to be the sacrifice. But it's something amazing happens. We're told that Abraham bound Isaac, something that Isaac would have had to let him do. Remember, as soon as Isaac figured out he was the offering, he could have ditched the wood and run. His father is an old man, 100, probably 115-ish by now, and Isaac's probably a teen, 15-ish. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he entrusts his very life to his father. Willingly and obediently going to his death. Hear that. Feel that paint pull out. See the depth of what is happening here. Abraham binds his son, which have had, had to have been just horrific. A father tying the hands, the feet, so that when he actually does kill him, he can't struggle enough to get away. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, the voice he'd been waiting to hear, here am I. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so God calls Abraham to entrust to his will the thing he loves most in the world. Will you entrust your miracle, your joy, to my will, even if it means losing him? When Abraham showed he was willing, there appeared the voice that he'd been hoping to hear. And I can't imagine that Abraham's reaction was anything but drop the knife and fall and weep on the breast of his son. He'd been spared by the living God. And it's not that God didn't know Abraham's heart, but it was important that his character be revealed. Abraham was a faithful man. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. But if there was one thing, one thing in the world that could become an idol and uh, surpass God in a place of priority in his heart, it was the the son that he had longed for and waited for. And it's such a facet of the human heart. So easy to idolize the gifts that God gives. Let them usurp the place that God rightly deserves as giver. And Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks and beholds behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. The last time he'd looked up, remember he saw Moriah, the place where the sacrifice was to happen. And now he looks up. And he sees the sacrifice that God is providing. He looks up and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And when you you hear that, don't think what I used to think. Like the idea of being a ram being caught in a thicket is not um, like tumbleweeds or like brush, little, little bushes where a cute little lamb that bounces around gets his fur caught. And you're like, oh, that's the sack. No, rams were, were massive animals. Uh, They could get up to 150, 200 pounds with with large, large um, horns. This This is a ram caught in a copse of trees. He's caught in trees. The sacrifice provided on a tree. And Abraham goes and he takes the ram and he brings it and he burns it as a sacrifice to the living God. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. By myself I have sworn, the first and only divine oath where God swears by himself in the narrative of the patriarchs, in his willingness to follow God without reserve, to entrust everything into his hands, Abraham is blessed. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham, you have not withheld your son, your only son, and the day will come when neither will I. So we have this moving, powerful story of our faithful covenant God who tests his servant Abraham to reveal the true character of his heart. Faithful he stands before his faithful God. And we also see revealed the heart of God. You must be willing to entrust everything from your faintest breath to your greatest joy into my hands. For I am good and I am faithful. But as I'm sure you've seen, there's more here. Wendell Berry 
talks about telling a story. And he says that when you tell a story, it's a little bit like jamming your hand into a silo of grain. And you try to get the whole thing, but you reach your hand in and you pull it out and you realize that most of the story has remained in here. You've got a little bit here. But what I hope we're seeing is this and this. I hope that we see the full thing because this sacrifice looks forward and it foreshadows another. Some 2,000 years after Abraham and Isaac, another miraculous birth takes place. Isaac was called the son of laughter. He would be called Christ, the son of the living God. He too would climb a mountain with the wood on his back by which he would be crucified. And providentially, it's that same geographic location, that same Mount Moriah with a new name, but the place that Abraham called, the Lord will provide. And like Isaac, he would entrust his life to his father. Like Isaac, he would willingly and obediently go to his death. But whereas Isaac was spared, Jesus would not be. For he was the lamb that God would provide. The spotless sacrifice who would die in our place that we might live. He's our hope. He is our joy. He is the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promises from God. Is the Christian faith intellectually naive? No, it's not naive. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's a gospel that was first announced in the Garden of Eden and a gospel that is so beautifully foreshadowed here some 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Marilyn Chandler McIntyre has written a really fantastic book called Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. And in it, she talks about what it means to be naive. She talks about naivete. And she says there's an interesting thing about naivete, and it's this. It has a counterpart, a flip side, and it's cynicism, hardness of heart. And she says they both actually lead us to do the same thing. They lead us to not deal with truth and reality. Let us never be naive, but instead use the intellect that God has given us that we might know him better, that we might know our Savior But let us also pray for the cynical, pray for the hard of heart, that they might be given eyes to see our Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are unworthy to call you Father, yet you make us your own. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you that you have saved us. We give you all praise and honor in his mighty name. Amen.